Well, good evening. Kick back, sit down in the enjoyable air conditioning on a day like this. Um, Wednesday nights, we're going through the book of Ephesians, and it's a great study. It's so, so enjoyable. We who have been there have enjoyed ourselves every week, and we invite you to come out Wednesday nights and go through the Bible and make that a priority to go through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, what the Bible says to us today. And it's a study where we just take it that way, one verse at a time, until our time's up and we close the book and start again the following week. Um, this Wednesday night, it's sort of a special, we're going to have a little bit of fun this week. Um, I've got a friend uh, with us from uh, Scotland, and I'm going to interview him about the state of the church in Scotland, sort of the history of that, and uh, uh, what opportunities exist for those of us who may want in the future to go and be there. But uh, Jim and his uh, wife are here tonight. Jim Nickel, where are you? Stand up, would you? Jim and his wife Caroline are there. Just stand up and wave in Scottish to us. Thank you very much. Would you open in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20? We're going to begin in a minute in verse 11 to the end of that chapter. Oh, by the way... We are being eavesdropped upon by 300-some radio stations around America right now, so give them your greetings. Tell them hello. Good job. Well, there were two men that were from the same subdivision. In fact, they were next-door neighbors. One was a pastor. The other guy was a salesman. And uh, the pastor died at the same time during the same week that the salesman took a trip to Florida. Now, it was the summertime. So when uh, the salesman arrived in Florida, he sent a telegram back to his dear wife. But it got delivered to the wrong house. got delivered to the house of the wife of the pastor who had died. And you can imagine how chagrined she was when she saw a telegram from your dear husband saying, arrived here safely, heat is awful. (laughs) Tonight, we're going to consider what is the most difficult, the most unpalatable, and truly the saddest doctrine in all of Scripture. It is the doctrine of hell. It is the fate of the unbeliever who rejects Christ. Now, you know this, but people use the term as a fill word, don't they? An expletive for all sorts of descriptions. It seems like when a person can't think very well, they just use fill words. And so they'll use phrases you've heard of like, what in the hell are you doing? How in the hell are you? Or even as bad as, go to hell. And that shocks some of us. Well, I was shocked. I wasn't expecting that kind of a compliment when... It was a Sunday morning service, and some fella came up to me, well-meaning and obviously moved by the message, put his arm on my shoulder and was dead serious when he said, Skip, that was a hell of a sermon. (laughs) And, And I didn't know what to say to him. I didn't know if I should thank him or rebuke him or what. There was a USA Today poll that tells us 67% of American adults believe in a hell. But less than 25% believe they will go there, while 25% believe their friends will go there. I think these people need better friends, don't you? 
If you read popular books about dying, they seem to leave out hell. I've noticed this. Books that talk about near-death experiences, dying temporarily while on their operating table, seeing a bright light, warm fuzzies, going through a tunnel, and seeing angels or saints or Jesus. But there's not any kind of mention at all, it seems, of the other possibility. Now, honestly, I wish I could stand before you tonight and say, there isn't a hell. Everybody who dies is going to heaven. There's just many roads to God, but there isn't a hell. But if I were to do that, I would be a liar. And the last time I checked, hell is still in the Bible. And the same Savior who loved the world and was sent by the Father, for God so loved the world, the same Jesus who said that, spoke about hell more than any other person in the Bible. In fact, if you count them up, more than all of them put together, our Savior spoke about it. Well, let's look at our text. Beginning in verse 11, John says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now where do we get the notion, to begin with, of hell? Well, you'd be interested to know that it is spoken about in the Old Testament. There's a trace of it all the way through the Bible. But it comes to its fullness, you might say, it is mentioned more frequently in the Gospels. As I mentioned, Jesus Christ speaks about hell more than all other places and people in the Bible combined. And the way Jesus speaks about it, the words that he uses are words that would strike terror into people's hearts. Descriptions from Jesus like weeping and gnashing of teeth, outer darkness, the worm that doesn't die, fire that is not quenched, Gehenna, the great gulf that is fixed, all of these from the words of Jesus. A few years ago, Dr. Morris Rawlings, a cardiologist, who up to that point in his life did not see any verification at all for the biblical renderings of heaven and hell, he said. He saw no scientific proof. He said all of that began to change when he started examining near-death experiences, the kind that aren't written about because they wouldn't make the money that the others do. He examined a hundred patients, and he wrote in a book, Beyond Death's Door, these words, I am thoroughly convinced that there is a life after death and that there are at least as many going to hell as going to heaven. The turning point in my own concept occurred when a patient experienced cardiac arrest and dropped dead in my office. Of course, that alone didn't change my thinking, but the fact that this 48-year-old was screaming, I'm in hell, keep me out of hell, 
Each time he responded to resuscitation efforts did cause me some concern. He wrote, About 50% of the revived persons told of having gone to a place of great darkness, filled with grotesque moaning and writhing bodies crying out to be rescued from this place with overwhelming feelings of eeriness and nightmarish terror. When he was asked why these are not reported like other near-death experiences about heaven and bright lights and warm fuzzies, he says, because people are too embarrassed to admit them and doctors are too embarrassed to make inquiries into such matters. But, he says, no one can afford to ignore these reports. I'm convinced there's a hell, he says, and that we must conduct ourselves in such a way as to avoid being sent there at all costs. Would you agree with that? Wouldn't you think it's worth it to avoid being sent there at all costs? So did Jesus. That's why, that's why he died for our sins because of what it would mean to die in our sins. In fact, tonight, folks, unless you understand hell, you can never understand the cross or the depth of Jesus' love. This is absolutely warp and woof intertwined with the great love of God, what he rescued people from. Now, I want you to go back to verse 5 and just notice something with me. We didn't cover that yet. But I'm going to give this to you in three slices tonight. Very simple statements. Number one, death is inevitable. Number two, judgment is unavoidable. And number three, hell is escapable. So the news gets better as we go. In verse 5, But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power. And then if you look at our text, notice how often death is mentioned in it. He saw a great white throne. It says in verse 12, I saw the dead, small and great. It says, and the dead were judged according to their works. Verse 13, the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. In verse 14, and death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. So the obvious point to be made is that death is inevitable. Solomon said in so many words, to everything there is a season, a time and purpose, for everything under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die. Everyone who ever is born dies. We know that. It's been said the statistics on death are very impressive. Every one out of one dies. People are dying who have never died before. It's amazing. Now, I know that's very, very obvious, but you would be amazed at either how many people deny it, don't want to talk about it, try to postpone it, or get mad at God because of it. Yet death is inevitable. In our culture, death seems to be so unreal because we we look at television and movies and we see people who die in the movies, but they're not really dead in real life. Or they're dead in real life, but they live on in the movies. John Wayne is still in the movies. Elvis, we wonder, will he ever die? He's always out there. 
and Marilyn Monroe and other actors, we still see them immortalized by film. Some people deny the fact of death. Did you know that? I saw a television report that talked about aging and death, and they interviewed three people who claimed to have eternal life. They said, boldface, into the lens of the camera, we will never die. We will not age, and we will not die. Now, I hope they do an interview with these three in about 25 years, don't you? To see if they've changed their thinking at all. But they claim that they would live forever in their present bodies. There's an old saying, death and taxes are inevitable. Somebody once heard that and said, death and taxes may be inevitable, but death doesn't get worse every time Congress meets. (laughs) However, it actually can get worse. Death can be worse if you die and meet God and you're not prepared to do so. We see a great white throne in our text. And Him who sat on it. Now we get a hint as to who this Him is. In John chapter 5, Jesus said, The Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment unto the Son. Now think about that. The very one sitting on the throne of judgment is the very one who walked the shores of Galilee and paid for the sins of the world so that no one would have to go into the lake of fire. He's the one that will cast people into it who have rejected him. That's an amazing thought. Now the Bible tells us, teaches us that Death isn't an accident. It's really an appointment. It is appointed, Hebrews tells us. It is appointed unto every man once to die, and after this, the judgment. Every single day of the year, about 147,000 some odd people die, go into eternity to stand before God at judgment. It's a sobering thought. Every day, 147,000 people. What does that mean to us? We've heard things like that before, but what does that mean to us? It means, number one, we should be aware of it. It means, number two, we should prepare for the inevitable, doesn't it? We should prepare for it. Now, I've heard people say, now, why should I prepare for death? Because after all, this life is all there is, and after death, it's all over, right? Wrong. You've only just begun. In fact, listen carefully, every single person, saved or unsaved, has eternal life, not in the sense of heaven, but in the sense of longevity, living forever and ever. Every person. Jesus put it this way, The hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear His voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. So, once we cross the threshold of death, our bodies decay, our souls live on forever. And our conscience lives on forever. So everybody lives forever. The question is where? Where will you spend eternity? If you haven't thought about that carefully, cautiously, deliberately, it's now time to do it. Now is the opportunity, and perhaps God has given you that opportunity because He loves you. You see, this inevitability of death and eternality and judgment is what bothered that man who was in a car accident. 
his car veered off the road and he hit a signpost. Now, he happened to hit a Shell gas station signpost so hard the S fell off. And imagine what it was like for him to wake up and see that blinking sign, hell, open 24 hours. He thought, oh no, this is it. The inevitability of death. Second, judgment is unavoidable. We're going to get into our text a little more carefully now. And the scene before us is called the Great White Throne Judgment. It is, without a doubt, the most sobering scene in all of Scripture, in all of the Bible. It's a courtroom scene. It's a vivid description of the final judgment of all unbelievers, mark that, unbelievers of all ages. There's not many verses. There's only, what, five verses, six verses, five of them? It's short, and it's plain, and it's straightforward, and it's simple, and there's no embellishing the text. There's no gory details, just the facts. This is what Jesus referred to in John 5 when he said, the resurrection of condemnation or the resurrection of damnation. As I see it, if you'd like to place this chronologically, it seems to take place between the end of the present universe, between that and the recreation or the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. If you look back to verse 11, he said, From whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. Verse 1 of chapter 21, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. So between those two events in eternity future comes this great white throne judgment of unbelievers. Now, this is the very event that Satan has tried to dupe people over and deceive them about since the beginning of history, is it not? This is the very thing he's been telling people they'll never face. Oh, there's no God. There's no judgment. Imagine there's no heaven, no hell below us, above us only sky. I imagine there's going to be an awful lot of surprised people on this day, don't you think? Now, a few things about this judgment, four of them to be exact. Number one, God is the one who presides over it. Aren't you glad that no earthly judge or court will make these determinations? People talk about and wonder about what's going to happen in the future. I take solace in the fact that God is on the throne now ruling the universe and will be on the throne of judgment in the future. Look at verse 11. I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books." Almost 50 times in the book of Revelation alone is a throne that appears. And this throne is the throne of judgment. This is God's throne. He's the only one qualified to sit on it. It's called the great white throne. Great because all unbelievers of all ages since the fall of humanity will stand there. And because it is the final judgment. 
It's called the great white throne. White, as you know, represents holiness, loftiness, uniqueness, purity, impartiality. So the great white throne judgment. Unlike an earthly court, it will be different. It will be similar, but different in many respects. What will make it different is that in heaven there will be no debate. You'll have a prosecutor. You'll have no defender. You have a judge. You have no jury. You have a sentence. You have no appeal. You have punishment. You have no parole. You have imprisonment, jail, with no, absolutely no escape. Now think about this. God is the only one presiding over judgment because God is the only one qualified to preside over judgment. Who else is omniscient, knows everything, knows every thought, every action, every motive of every person who has ever lived? Only God. Who else is omnipresent? Thus, the best eyewitness who was there at the scene of every crime, every sin, every thought. He saw it all. He is everywhere present. And who else is omnipotent? Who else created the heavens, the earth, people, angels, Satan, and even hell itself? By the way, God created hell. It's not like hell is this unfortunate thing that Satan came up with on his own. He like took a part of heaven and was a bad boy and trashed it. So God said, okay, that's hell. God created hell, but not for people. He never, ever, ever in his mind wanted people ever to go there. Jesus described hell by saying, everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So it was never meant for human habitation. If a person goes to hell, it is because a person chooses to do so by rejecting Christ. You see, you might say when it comes to heaven and hell, God is pro-choice. G.K. Chesterton wrote, Hell is God's great compliment to the reality of human freedom and the dignity of human choice. God says the choice is up to you. The way to heaven has been paved. You can avert hell altogether. Choose life. And yet people go, I don't want to choose life. But that is a choice to end up in hell. Not only does God preside over it, but look more carefully. None will escape it. Verse 12, I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were open. You see the word dead? This refers to unbelievers. Unbelievers only. No Christian will be at the great white throne judgment. None. Not a single one. I'll tell you why. By this time, the godly have already been resurrected. They have already received their heavenly rewards at the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat of Christ that we talked about last week. And they have already reigned for a thousand years with Jesus Christ. I want you to see that. Go back to verse 4. I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus, for the word of God, and had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy 
is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him for a thousand years. So believers will not stand or be present at the great white throne judgment. Why? Simply because our judgment has already taken place. When? On the cross. Our judgment for sin has taken place 2,000 years ago on the cross. For Jesus, your Savior, said in John 5, He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and does not come into judgment, but passes from death into life. So these are the unbelieving dead. And notice, small and great. That means the somebody and the nobody. The rich and famous, the poor and obscure. Kings, queens, and peasants, presidents, and voters, everyone alike. God is no respecter of persons when it comes to those who have rejected him for whatever reason. And they're standing. This is sort of like a courtroom. Will the accused rise and approach the bench? They're standing in a judicial sense, in a guilty sense, like condemned prisoners before the bar of justice. This isn't a happy scene, folks. This is what the writer of Hebrews meant when he said, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Now, think about the scene for just a moment. The dead are there. There's this mention of death and the dead and death and Hades giving up their dead and being cast into the lake of fire. There's something obvious. Again, you can't miss. Death is the last chance. You don't get other chances after death. You don't go to a certain holding tank and get prayed out of it. In the game of life, you might say, death is your final answer. Death is it. It's the great chasm. And there's heaven and there's hell. Sometimes I will hear people say, I bet you've heard it as well, well I'm looking forward to hell. All my buddies are there. Well, that may be true. They may be there. But that doesn't mean you want to be there because it's not going to be like some great party. Lots of fun going on. It's not party time. This is judgment time. Ted Turner, Turner Broadcasting, who called Christianity a religion for losers, you may remember a few years ago, said, I'm looking forward to dying and going to hell. Can you imagine saying that? Because, he said, that's where I'm headed. Okay? He goes on, heaven is perfect. Who wants to go to a place that's perfect? Boring, 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 he said. He spoke of hell, and he said, we're going to have a chance to make things better because hell's supposed to be a mess. <laughs> Listen, there's no tenant improvement plan in hell. There's no investment incentive to up the quality of the property down there. You know, the way some people are living, you know, you'd think hell got air conditioned in the last 20 or 30 years or something. Like, ah, no big deal. Look at verse 12 again and into verse 13. There's something else about this judgment, and that is the fairness. I want you to notice, fairness will govern it. It says, The dead were judged according to their works by the things that were written in the books. 
the books were opened. Now, what are these books? We don't know exactly. Some heavenly inventory, more than one, there's the book of life, but there's the mention of these books. Well, the books could refer to the record of everything we've ever said, everything we've ever done, everything we've ever thought. Jesus, you remember, in Matthew 12 said, Every idle word that men will speak, they will give an account for in the day of judgment. Another book might be the book of conscience. Because God has placed embedded within man a consciousness, a basic idea of right and wrong. You know that the easiest thing to get a child to do is to get that child to believe in God. It comes so naturally. You have to plant a lie deliberately in the heart of a child for that child to reject Christ. Somebody's got to do that. And uh, the Bible says in Romans 2, the work of the law was written in their hearts, their conscience bearing them witness, their thoughts accusing or excusing them in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Another book may be the record of all the times you've heard the gospel and decided to put it off, to reject it. Maybe the time your wife came forward at an altar call and said yes to Jesus and you said, well, that's for women. Or a friend did it and you glibly basked in your own intellectualism and said, well, they need a crutch. But then there is this and the book of life. The book of life. Did you know that in ancient times, courts not only had a log of criminals, but they had their own log of loyal citizens? I think that's the idea here. Here's the book of life. It's the names of everyone saved. Imagine the nail-scarred hands of the Savior breezing through the pages of the book of life, and as he scans through, your name is not found. And the books are closed, and he says, your name isn't here. And a person hearing that starts trembling and starts saying something like, But Lord, we, we prophesied in your name and we did many good works in your name. And Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from me. Imagine having that ring in your ears forever. Perhaps then, perhaps one of the reasons that believers are not present at the great white throne judgment is it would be impossible to bear that sight and hearing those sounds of people you worked with or lived with for eternity. Speaking of eternity, look at verse 14 and 15 because this is an eternal thing. This isn't a temporary thing. Eternity will accommodate this judgment. And death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. Now, I've got to tell you that from my study, death and Hades are synonyms. They mean the same thing. Hades is a word for the grave. You, you might look at it this way. Death is the condition. Hades, the grave, is the destination. But they're both cast, notice, into the lake of fire. This is the second separation or the second death. The lake of fire is a metaphorical name for an eternal hell. Whatever has been up to this point has been temporary, and both of those are deposited into this what is called the lake of fire, a place of eternal judgment. The Old and the New Testament refer to it sometimes as Gehenna, which was actually a valley outside of Jerusalem. You can still see it today, but a couple thousand, three thousand years ago, it was the garbage dump. 
And people threw trash on this garbage dump. And because there was a constant trash collecting and trash dumping and trash burning, the fire never went out in the Valley of Hinnom or the Valley of Gehenna. So it became a metaphor of this eternal burning and judgment. It's no news, but if people have a problem with hell, and they do, they have an even worse problem with the idea of an eternal hell, an eternal hell. And because of that, they have developed new teachings, like universalism, that says no one is lost, all will eventually be saved, or annihilationism. There won't be an eternal judgment. We'll just cease to exist as if we never existed, never were born at all. I can't believe that. I can't buy either one of those for this simple reason. Jesus, the same Savior who said, For God so loved the world, the same Savior who spoke about eternal bliss in heaven, used the same word to describe punishment for the lost. In fact, the word that he used for eternal was ionios, which means perpetual. In Matthew 25, Jesus said, And these will go away into everlasting ionios, punishment, but the righteous into eternal ionios, life. Same word, same description, two experiences. If hell is an eternal, neither is heaven. There's a t-shirt. It's very popular. It's called No Fear. Have you seen it? I just thought about this this week. I, I don't know why, but I kept thinking about that. And, you know, the idea of I'm so bold. I wear this t-shirt and I put the sticker on my truck. No fear. Imagine how silly that would look on Judgment Day to wear that t-shirt. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Now look at verse 15. We're going to close with a thought. Death is inevitable. Judgment is unavoidable, but hell is escapable. Hell is escapable. In verse 15, And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now this would prompt a question. And it would imply something. It would imply that if your name is written in the book of life, you won't be cast into the lake of fire. Hence the second question, how do I get my name written in the book of life? That's the question God wants you to ask. Listen, there's only one person who wants you in hell. It's not Christ. The only one who wants you in hell is Satan. Jesus described the devil by saying, The thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Folks, do you know why Jesus spoke so much about hell more than any other prophet or person in the Bible? He spoke about hell because, number one, he created it. He had seen it. He knew what it was like. And number two, that's why he came to this earth, to save us from that. Listen, if there's no hell, if we're going to sit by glibly and say, oh, I don't believe in hell, then I'll ask you the question, why did Jesus die on a cross? If there's no hell, what are we being saved from? What is the point of going out and preaching the gospel to every creature at the point of persecution and the risk of death? Jesus said to do it because he knew better. That's why he went to a cross. That's why we need salvation. Can we escape? Oh, yes. You see, 
we read so much about death and the second death and the first resurrection and the second resurrection. And we start seeing that when the Bible speaks about death and life, it goes beyond physical death and physical life, doesn't it? It means something deeper, something more, doesn't it? There's a simple formula. If you haven't memorized it, you can memorize it tonight. Born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. Let me explain. If if you're born physically, and I can see that you are, but you are not born again, as Jesus said, you must be to enter the kingdom of heaven, then you will die twice, physically and eternally perish. But if you're born twice, physically and you are, and spiritually by receiving the solution for our sin, which would lead us to hell, in that state of being born again, you're going to die once at best. But you won't face the second death because you will live forever and ever. So born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. Again, I wish I could say there is no hell. In fact, there's a lot of things in the Bible I wish I could say, that's not really true. But then I would be a liar. And I would not have discharged my sacred duty as a truth bearer and gospel preacher. I'm going to read you a parable as we close. At the end of time, billions of people were scattered on a great plain before God's throne. Some near the front were talking heatedly in groups. They were not doing so with cringing shame, but with belligerence. How can God judge us? What a ripoff. How can he know about suffering, snapped a cynical brunette. She jerked back a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endure terror, beatings, torture, death. In another group, a black man lowered his collar. What about this, he demanded, showing an ugly rope burn, lynched for no crime except being black. We have suffocated in slave ships. We've been wrenched from our loved ones, toiled until only death gave us release. Far out across the plain were hundreds of such oppressed minorities. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and the suffering he had permitted in this world. How privileged God was to live in heaven where there was no repression. All was sweetness and light, no weeping, no fear, no hunger, no hatred. Indeed, what did God know about the hassles man had in the world? So each of these oppressed minorities sent out a leader, chosen because he'd suffered the most. There was a Jew, a black, an untouchable from India, an illegitimate son, a prisoner of war, an Indian, one from a Siberian slave camp. In the center of the plain, they consulted with each other, At last, they were ready to present their case. It was simple. Before God was ever qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. But because he was God, they set certain safeguards to be sure that he would not use his divine power to help himself. Let him be born a minority, they said, say a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted so that many will question who his father really is. Let him champion a cause so just, so radical, that it brings down upon him the hate, condemnation, and eliminating efforts of the establishment and traditional religious authority. Let him be the object of put-downs and ridicule. Let him be spat upon and labeled mad. 
Let him be betrayed by his dearest friends. Let him be indicted on false charges, tried before a perjury, a prejudiced jury, pardon me. Let him experience what it is to be terribly alone and abandoned by every living thing. Let him be tortured. Let him die. Let him die the most humiliating death. Let his name live on for centuries and be used as a common curse word in moments of rage. As each leader stepped forward and announced his portion of the sentence, a loud approval went up from the great throng of people to be judged. When the last had finished pronouncing the sentence, there was a long, long silence. No one uttered another word. No one moved, for suddenly they all knew God had already served his sentence. Have you ever had somebody say, well, there's no hell. Hell is what I'm going through now. That's all the hell there is. Oh, no, it can get far worse. It can get far worse. If your worst days are ahead of you, you're lost. If your best days are ahead of you, you're saved. What are you looking forward to? You're all going to live somewhere. Where will it be? What an opportunity to think hard and clearly about the most important matters Heavenly Father, as your people, we pray that this truth would motivate us to live and to speak in such a way that loved ones, relatives, friends, co-workers, and anyone who would listen would make it to the place you came to open up, heaven, your Father's house. And we pray, Father, for those who may be listening by radio or internet or television, whatever, or here, right here in this room, who've gone along with the crowd. They've come to church, but that's as far as they've come. They haven't stepped into the realm of eternal life. Lord, that's what we want more than anything else tonight. Death is inevitable. Judgment is unavoidable. But Lord, as we have seen, hell is escapable. Because you came to take our punishment. Jesus, you were treated like we deserve to be treated. So that we would be treated by your Father like you deserve to be treated. That is the deal. Let not anyone here pass that up. I want you to pray right now for those who may be sitting around you. God would speak to their heart. It's not a sermon or an emotional story that saves a person. It must be a sovereign work of God in a person's heart. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draw him. So pray that God by His Spirit would draw some to the convicting reality of their need for Jesus. Their need for Jesus. Their need for Jesus. Their need for Jesus.